Hey, I'm Nick. And I'm Greg. And he's old. And I'm young. But we're both cute. You're listening to a new episode of the Mangina Dialogues. Uneducated, unfiltered, unhinged. This is the Mangina Dialogues. We at it again with your host Nick Scopes and the Gregolicious. You know how we do, cause you know we keeping it gangster and silly. Unplugged like a fool swung titty. About get jitty, cause you know we down to the nitty and the gritty. And we make shit sound so damn pretty. Yeah, cause this unhinged comedy. And right now you're in the mix. So get ready, cause we bout to get it poppin'. We ain't stopping. I'm educated, unfiltered, unhinged. Hello and welcome to the Mangina Dialogues. I am your host, Nick Scopes. And I am inmate number 69. <laughs> Stupid. That's Greg Alperin. And our guest today, the very funny Vince August. What's up, my man? How are you? I'm doing well. I have to tell you, that intro song, having never heard it before, doesn't go where you think it's going to go when you hear that first beat. <laughs> <laughs> I, was waiting, I saw your facial expressions, and I was like, I can't yeah. wait to hear what he has to say. <laughs> I'm like, what is this, like 1940s swing band? I'm like, this is something new for a fucking po-. And then all of a sudden, I was like, oh, okay, no, it's that again. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Who are these two assholes? Yeah. Who are these two idiots? <laughs> That we met under a tree in Central Park. <laughs> oh, greatest show of my life. Are you kidding me? Couldn't be ro- more romantic. You did. I mean, dude, you did crush. You were essentially the headliner. You were the last one to go, and you crushed. It's hard in those outdoor shows. I was telling Greg earlier, I don't know, like, you know, there's shit going on in the park. You don't know if you're doing well. Like, you hear the laughs, but you're like, is that loud enough? Like, it's getting my, I get in my own head, but you killed dude. it's it's really tough to do those shows um because you just it's like you said you don't know if you're doing well or not and then all of a sudden this thing kicks in where you remind yourself of the environment and you're like oh yeah that's right it doesn't matter if i'm doing really well or not because right. I'm, I'm one step removed from a homeless person just yelling shit out <laughs> of the park <laughs> it's true and even like you could be mid-set and a homeless person literally could walk by or start yelling. I yeah. was, there was a children's party, I think, 10 yards from where we were doing the show. Like, Yeah, exactly. Around, you're like, okay. This one. Yeah, it's like, all right, all right yeah. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to, in this tent over here. <laughs> Did you do a lot of their shows on, in the parks over the summer? It's the only one I've done. In fact, Stand Up New York, is. we've had a weird relationship over the years. I, I was like the second club I was ever passed at back when um, Tim was running the place in the late nineties. And then it was like, someone came in and then I got passed again. And then someone new came in and I was never booked. And now I don't even know who the booker is. Um, so that was like one of the first shows I've done for stand up in a while. They, they rarely have ever used me. And I was like, yeah, no, I'm thank you. I'm like, by the way, I'm available like the rest of us. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm free. We're all free. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. At the time. I mean, they're, they're interesting shows, you know, <clears throat> and, you know, obviously giving it up to those guys for what they did to kind of keep comedy alive throughout the summer. You know, I think they it's produced- amazing what they've done. Yeah. And, I mean, and, it, it, and we're all dying to do shows. So yeah. we, you know, comics, we would do a show anywhere. 
Yeah. I mean, it really was, you know, 400 some odd shows over the summer and still doing it through, you know, now and expanding into LA and who knows where else. And we've done, we're doing some shows with them out here in Connecticut. It's, you know, really a testament to their guys' tenacity, you know, and, yeah. and not taking shit really and, and just kind of keeping it going. And, and it's funny too, because it, it came on the heels of that weird kind of, you know, newspaper fight between Jerry Seinfeld and, and the owner. Yeah where he was just like, New York is falling apart. And Jerry's like, no, it's not. It's great. And meanwhile, the, the guy who's saying it's falling apart is actually trying to do something to, to not make it fall apart. And the guy was saying, no, it's great. It's fantastic. I'm going to be over here doing nothing to help. You know, so it, it was kind of like, wow. <laughs> yeah, it, that, you know, that article that, you know, that Jerry wrote, uh, I, I thought it was super offensive, you know, to – the working comics who don't have the means that this guy has sitting in his mansions in you know, Malibu and in the Hamptons, you know, it's nice perspective to have and, you know, shit on someone the way he did. But, you know, really the question is what, what did you do? What are you doing? Exactly. Yeah. And I think the, the answer was fucking nothing. <laughs> right. You right. Know? And the guy who's actually doing something who has his pulse, his finger on the pulse of New York is saying, no, listen, I, I know that it, it's dying and it's in trouble because I'm actually trying to be proactive and do something and right. I'm seeing what's happening. I'm, I'm on the street. You're not. So it's nice of you to say, oh, by the way, no, this guy's crazy and he's wrong. Well, yeah, well, whatever he is, he's actually still trying to do something while you're not. And yeah. you're just going to be like, no, it's going to be fun. It'll come back. You'll see. Yeah, dude, I know from your, like you said, from your mansion. Right. Yeah. He's uh he's Seinfeld. I've never I'm just gonna say, I've never cared for him. He just he seems like he's been that guy though his whole life. Like I don't think it's because of the money or because he's Jerry Seinfeld. I feel like if you met him at 18, he's the same guy <laughs> that he is right now. <laughs> yeah. weird, it's just a richer feeling. version. Yeah, it's just like exactly. an uber wealthy version of himself. It's like a dickhead. <laughs> but um <laughs> I don't like him. Anyways, so we will talk about comedy a little bit later on, but I want to get yep. to your powerlifting career. Yes. Talking to a guy, my undergrad was exercise science. I'm a trainer here at Equinox. That's what I've done. I, I used to powerlift. You were a champion. I just was, you know, fucking a hobby. <laughs> but, uh, the guy in a very, very tight pair of underwear. Singlet. Yeah. I just wanted to wear a singlet and look cute. Yeah. That was really it. Um, dude, I want to know your numbers. Give me bench squad deadlift. I want All to right, so, um, and I, weight class. I competed at 165. Um, I would train, my, my training weight was about 170. So I would cut about five pounds and I would always come in way under. Um, and my, my best competition numbers were 500, 300, 500. So for 1300 total, um, my best gym numbers were 525 on a squat, 325 on the bench. And I think I did 530 deadlift. I think it was just over 525. Um, but the the last meet I did, I was the Northern USA Championships, and I wound up winning my weight class, and I I, I was actually best lifter uh, for the the sessions up to uh, 198, and then they, I'm sorry 181, and then 198 to the heavier classes had a second session, and I wound up winning best lifter. In fact, just to show you how I keep my glory days going, I still have the trophy. <laughs> I carry it around with me everywhere I go. Um, <laughs> because it's, you know, it's not too big. Um, yeah, no, it, it was one of those things that, and, you know, after the meet, I'm like, I'm done. You know, my, my body was just destroyed. I felt it. 
uh, because that's way too light of a person to be doing. And we were doing walkouts. We were doing squat walkouts for people that don't know. It's yeah. when you just load up the bar with more weight than you would squat and just hold it on your back for 60 seconds. And, you know, when you weigh 165 pounds, you shouldn't be holding 600 pounds on your back for any reason at all. Um, other than you're being crushed by a building and yeah. that's the way you're going to die. Um, so yeah, it, it was, it was not good for me and I never did supplementation in terms of steroids or anything like that. So I, I knew that's, I'm like, you know what, this is as good as I can do and I'm, I'm comfortable leaving. And, uh, that was my last meet and I got invited to, uh, compete for, they were going to do, um, powerlifting in the Olympics. And I got invited to come to the camps to come train with them and I'm like, nah, I'm going to pass. And then I got invited to this strongman thing where they were doing these annual awards. And I'm like, ah, I'm not going to go to that. And I wound up winning New York Times Powerlifter of the Year wow. in 1990. And I had no idea. I wasn't there. So one day <laughs> in the mail, I got like this plaque and this newspaper. And I'm like, the first time I could go to an award show and actually win something. And I was like, ah, I'm not going to go. What are the chances I'm going to win? And I was that guy. So yeah, so I actually, that was... That was how I left powerlifting. That's awesome. Yeah, that sport, man, it, it chews you up and spits you out. It depends yeah. on, on the person. I had a buddy who competed in strongman, and he was at a gym with a bunch of guys that went on to like you know win championships, and you know they. But those guys were on all the steroids. Yeah, I mean all of them. And it was at the point where like in their training sessions, guys were like turning purple and bleeding out of their nose. And my buddy was like, "They're like, yo, you should." take some uh take some stuff and he's like no nah, i like want to have kids and like get married not die like i, I was say at the yeah, time he's like i don't want to <laughs> i was you 22 know? years old in back traction and i'm like yeah I, i'm done Oof. yeah i'm like yeah. i'm done yeah that's when it's time to it's all right you're smart some people just keep going <laughs> just no keep but I, it, it's funny because i left you know having won that that big meet and qualifying for the nationals and, you know, when you see athletes, and I'm not comparing myself in any way to, like, you know, a Barry Sanders, but when you see somebody that walks away and they're like, how can you leave at the height of it? You just know. Yeah. You woke up one morning and you're like, I'm done. And that's, that's what, you know, something just shuts off. And an athlete, like, you know, I trained martial arts for years. And then um, I had a match where I was, I was rolling with somebody on the ground. We were grappling. And his knee came and hit me, like, right just under my eye. And, you know, an inch to the left and I'm dead. And he was, you know, a guy bigger than me, like 40 pounds, but he liked to roll with me because, you know, I, I have a ton of endurance. I never tire out. And after that, I was just like, what am I doing? You know, I, I have like a job, you know, I want to have a career in, in entertainment. What, what am I doing here? You know, and, and for after he hit me in the face, you know, I kind of got up and my jaw felt a little off and I went home that night and my tooth was cracked. So half of my tooth came off. And my fiance looked at me. She's like, "You done? You done <laughs> fucking around? You, you think?" So? And I'm like, "Yeah, I'm done." Yeah. <laughs> what kind of martial arts? What did you were you doing? I, I did a whole bunch growing up. So I started off doing Aiki Jiu Jitsu, which um, was a lot of fun. And my sensei, uh, one day we, we were like month to month, and then one day we showed up at the school, which was in Fairlawn on Broadway, um, and he wasn't there anymore. He just literally just disappeared. <laughs> like one day. The school was like, we like showed up and I'm like, hey, did, did anybody get like, did the school move? And I'm like, no, he just, he's gone. Since A. Jefferson's gone. Uh, <laughs> then I trained with a buddy of mine up in New York for a little bit. Um, and then I found a place in Hackensack. Uh, this guy, uh, Sensei Tom Torpy, was a really good guy. 
who was like, you know, a little bit of show to come, which was judo uh, mixed in with karate. And he had a Brazilian guy who barely spoke a lick of English. And I probably learned more from that guy never being able to communicate the language than I did from most of the people I train with just because he would show you things. Right. And, and the way he would explain things because, you know, there was a language barrier was incredible. So like one day, you know, we were in a mount where I was on the ground and he took his hands and he tapped them on the mat and he was trying to explain to not put your hands on the mat. So he was going hot, hot, right. like a kid touching a stove. Hot. So I'm like, oh, the mat's hot. Don't touch the mat. I'm like, okay, I got yeah. that stupid little cue of hot. And you know what? You never put your hand on the mat again because you realized that's when you were going to be in an arm bar. That's when you all of a sudden yep. you were going to get wrapped in, or a wrist lock or something. So, yeah. So I was lucky enough to learn from um, Sensei Eric for years. And then, like I said, just rolling around, it became more about working out than anything else. And then, you know, a knee almost killed me. And I'm like, all right, I'm good. Right. <laughs> it's time to call it dude it's yeah, funny good. it's funny you said about those cues i played um i played football in high school and i was an offensive lineman so we were all the big guys and I'll, i still remember this cue to this day so our coach was talking about pass blocking you keep your hands up here he's like just imagine you're eating a sandwich he goes you guys never put your sandwiches down he goes i see you in the cafeteria and we were like <laughs> that's a good point <laughs> and like the everyone understood th- it yeah dumbest thing you'll ever forget I did. Uh, I, I took close quarters combat at a dance studio in Times Square for a few years. And the two guys that trained them, trained that were our trainers, I, I met in my gym in the city. And he was like, oh, you want to do this? I'm like, yeah, sure. So he's like, come down, me and my friend teach these classes. So they, they claimed to have been um, in the Navy and they train guys in the Navy. I've never been able to corroborate that. I just rolled with it. And we, <laughs> I go into training with my like five or six friends. They gave us this private class. From the first second we walked in, it was full contact. Yeah. Full contact. So they brought, I was the first dummy to go out, you know, and do this with them first. And they swept my leg from the get go. Right. And I had never, it was such a weird feeling to, to be on the ground, not yet be in pain, and then have that pain come like three seconds later. Yeah. Well, even like when I started uh, learning Brazilian jiu-jitsu, not having known any of it, and most of the stuff we did was standing up. Yeah. Um, you know, the one thing that, you know, I, I got taught one move in this one class, and the next thing you know, I was being matched with somebody. I'm like, yeah, I know basically one move. And he was just like, okay, you use the one thing. So he's like, one thing, use, use one thing. So I'm like, oh, so just use that one move. I'm like, all right, the other guy pretty much knows the one move I know because I just learned it now. (laughs) But it was just like, yeah, but you know what? Use that one move. If if that's all you know, well, then that's what you're going to use today. Yeah, for sure. So just use that. It was the best training I ever, I mean, I I box still to to today. Yeah. And it, that, that like, year or so I did those classes was by far the best self-defense training I, I could ever imagine having because we went from literally doing nothing to full combat stick and knife fighting within a year like full on yeah. and it's it was incredible like I never felt more safe <laughs> like walking around like all right I know how to use a stick and a knife like and take someone out like I mean it it's it was such an incredible feeling to be able to walk around with not not in well, an aggressive way just in a pure right. defensive way 
Well, yeah, because the first thing that you learn, especially like in Brazilian jiu-jitsu, goes against everything that you've ever been taught, which is flee. Right. And in and jiu-jitsu, it's like, no, you want to keep the person as close to you as possible. Right. And it's like, no, shouldn't I be pushing? And they're like, no, you push, arm bar, arm, you know? Yeah. And it's like, no, keep them close. And once you get over that anxiety of someone attacking you and keeping that person close, which, you know, was always the case in martial arts pretty much with jiu-jitsu, it's like, oh, okay, yeah. But you know what? I'm going to get hit. Yep. So get, you know, just understand you're going to get hit and that's okay. You know, it's, it's being able to not immediately freak out when you do get hit or yeah. when someone does grab you. Yeah, yeah no, it's, it's, it's fun stuff. Yeah, it is legit, man. I took a handful of classes and I'm 230 pounds and I was getting just thrown by this 100, <laughs> 150 pound dude. He was being polite. He was like, the, he was one of the owners of the place Black yeah. belt in Brazilian and Japanese jujitsu. Wow. And he was just throwing me. And then I got paired with this 22-year-old girl who was a purple belt. She fucked me up. And I was like, this is incredible. Yeah. I was like, what is this sport? Yeah, my, my favorite is like when the 70-year-old dude comes in, you know, who like just walks up behind you and like puts a finger in your back and you crumble to the ground like a fucking <laughs> skeleton ornament on a door for Halloween. Like you're just a bag of bones and you drop to the ground. Yeah, that's my favorite. Nick, did I ever tell you how I was when I uh, – did you ever train at Trinity down on, on Trinity Street in uh, lower Manhattan? It's a boxing no. gym. It's an old – I've heard of it, but I never trained there. Old, old school Yeah, like gym. one of the original ones. Yeah, very. And, you know, it looks it. And I, I used to train down there for a little bit of time, and I went down there one night to take – it was classes. And the guy was like, oh, you're going to spar with this girl, right? And I'm like, no, man, I don't want to spar with a girl. Like, that's not – like that's not right i don't want to do that and he's like just you're fine just do it just you know whatever just don't be aggressive just spar she's you know got two years on you and i'm like it doesn't matter i'm still a guy like whatever so he finally convinced me to get go in the ring with this girl and i'm i i didn't get my hands in any kind of position and she's going full on and at yeah. me and I'm like just swatting stuff away she connected so clean and dropped me to the ground right yeah and I turn around, I walk out of the ring, go to the locker room, take my shit off, left the gym, never could go back. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You saw her when the bell rang and never again after never that. Again. And I'm like, she totally took me out clean, like yeah. clean, like expert. The, and I'm like, nope, I can't come back to this gym ever again. And I never been back. <laughs> the funniest thing I remember when I was first sparred with somebody way back, I was like 18 years old. And I was jujitsu and the kid was like, this was the first time I sparred with somebody with like a big belt and it was a brown belt. And it was that thing where you would stand in the middle of everyone and they would, since they would call off a number and that person would yep. attack. So I was the person that attacked. And if people are watching this on video, I literally came at the guy just like, you know, <laughs> crazy arms swinging and the, the brown belt like got freaked out by it. And I, I just got in and totally tackled him. And he got up and he's like, what the fuck was that? I'm like, dude, if you grew up in my neighborhood, that's exactly how everyone fights you. That's the heck and segue. That is literally, that's like every girl, every guy, anybody I've ever known, this is the move that they have. And, they just run out. <laughs> and it's the truth. It's yeah. like you, that's the first move you have to learn how to defend as a human being. <laughs> just, just swimming arms. Dude, that is going to be – that vision is going to be stuck in my head for the next few hours. I'm not gonna Definitely going to be a promo for this, just just those arms flailing. <laughs> so, uh, so let's, let's transition into uh, comedy. Yes. 
because you actually you have a real career. And yeah. <laughs> you went to law school and you're all smart and stuff and you got into comedy. So like how, when did you get into comedy? What prompted it? And I know you kind of kept those two worlds separate for a while, right? Your yeah, I, I, I had to. And I didn't realize at the time why it was more important to do it the way I did uh, as I did later on. But it was I actually got into them. I shouldn't say at the same time because I went to law school, took the bar exam. And then it was after I took the bar exam that I was like, all right, listen, I've wanted to do this since I was a kid. My parents always talked me out of it. They were immigrants. They were just like, yeah, comedy acting, that's not a career. That's just like a thing that you want to do. Um, so right. I, yeah, while I was waiting for my bar results, I'm, I made a tape um, and I gave it to a buddy of mine who worked at a, a shop, right? Um, where, and it would like stock shelves at night and the, the place was closed. And he played the tape over the loudspeaker and uh, this is how far back we're going. It's the 90s. He sent me a page that night and I called him up and he's like, dude, we're, we're fucking dying. He's like, this is hysterical. You got to do something. Um, so the first time I ever did it, you know, I, I rented into a tape recorder for like an hour. Um, so I worked on that set forever because I had lawyers mentality, just write a lot, come up with something long. And I was like, all right, let me do it. Um, I took a course because I didn't know how else to break in. And it was one of those courses that ends with a graduation show at a comedy club. And I'd never been to a comedy club in my life. All my experience with comedy was HBO specials. Yeah. And I'm like, all right, this is going to be the first time I step into a comedy club. And it was at Caroline's on Broadway. And the guy who ran the course didn't like me or my style and was trying to talk me out of my set. So I had to hand him a dummy set because he didn't want me to do what I was going to do. Um, and I wound up going up, doing my own thing. And, you know, luckily it worked out well. There was someone there from Gotham and is like, hey, you want to come down and do, you know, a show at Gotham? And I wound up doing a show at Gotham when it was on 22nd. And then that night someone said, hey, you should go talk to Tim at Stand Up New York. And Tim Davis was at Stand Up New York. And I went there on a Tuesday and there were three people in the audience. I will never forget. It was a gorgeous day in the summer. And it was three people sitting at the front table and, and people were coming in. A couple of famous comics came in and were like, oh, dude, I'm, I'm going to pass. And I looked at him, I'm like, I'll, I'll fucking go up. So he's like, go. And he put me up and I wound up doing like 10 minutes banter, whatever jokes I knew that I had in this, you know, limited repertoire uh, that I wrote overnight. And he goes, start sending in the veils. And I got lucky, man. I just, you know, I kept plugging away and, and would get spots and just kept writing and, and adding on that one set. And um, yeah, it just, it just kind of happened. And at the same time, I was an attorney and my initial reaction was to keep the lives separate because I was working for a criminal defense attorney who was very high profile and I didn't want him to find out. Um, the other thing is I didn't want my family to find out. And this was before the internet with social media and all that shit. Right. So, you know, I, I used two separate names, my first name, my middle name for my stage name. And I had my legal name, which was my full name for law. And was doing both. And as I got busier in entertainment and I started getting sent out for commercials, I took a commercial acting class, got an agent. I was like, shit, man, I, I think I need to, you know, take a full shot at this. And to me, a full shot was quit my job working for somebody else, hang a shingle. So I had autonomy, right. not right. realizing just how financially I was going to struggle yeah. And um, yeah, I struggled for a long time. And when, listen, when, when I struggled in my law practice, I would focus energy there, build that up, you know, and then comedy would take a hit. So you, I'd only hit the stage maybe once a week, once every two weeks. 
And then when I saw that bug, you know, getting bigger and bigger and I had to get, I would start to put more energy in there. And after, you know, so many years, it started to kind of balance out. So what, like, <clears throat> what's it like now? What's the, uh, the comedy law balance like now? Well, it got a little weird when I got approached to be a judge. So in, in 2007, I got approached by the town, one town over from where I grew up. And they said, listen, um, we're, we have new people in charge here at the town. And I thought they would call me in to maybe be a public defender because I was a criminal defense attorney. And they're like, um, we want to nominate you to be a judge. And I was like, yeah, I, I don't think you should do that. I'm like, I appreciate it and everything. But um, yeah, that, that's, that's probably not going to work out well for either one of us. And they were like, hmm. well, why not? And I, I was literally going to Gotham that night to do a set. And I, I handed them a, a video because we used to all have our, our promo videos. I'm like, you guys should really watch this. And they're like, what, is this about you being a, a comedian? They're like, we know, we vetted you. So I'm like, yeah, you know what, but I, I don't need this. And I'm, I'm happy. And they're like, well, we're going to vote for you. I'm like, well, listen, I'm like, I don't even know who you are. You guys Republicans, Democrats, I don't even, and they're like, we're three Republicans, two Democrats. I'm like, yeah, I don't donate money to politicians. I'll be honest. So I'm probably not going to get passed anyway, but I appreciate it. But the mayor absolutely loved me. And then I got a phone call and she said, you got a five nothing vote. You're a new judge. You're going to get sworn in in a month. So I was like, oh, fuck, judge. <laughs> yeah. And then that was when it kind of, you know, got weird because then I really had to keep lives separate and secretive and everything else, which is the total antithesis of what you want to do when you're an entertainer. Yeah. You want everybody to know who you are. Um, but, you know, I, I respect my profession because I worked hard at it. And um, then when that whole case blew up in the Supreme Court and it made me choose between the two, you know, obviously I chose comedy and law and gave up being a judge. And there was a, a quick bump from being newsworthy, certainly not famous. And then when that bump went away, I, I, was, I was struggling. I was struggling to get spots. I, I remember I did like, in one year, I did like 80 shows, which is the worst I had done dating back to when I first started. Wow. And I was like, man, you know what? I, I, may, I think I made the wrong decision here. And I went out to Hollywood. I pitched some shows and I nearly had a deal and then, you know, Judge Judy put a kibosh on a deal that was almost done because she didn't want another judge show at the network she was at and all kinds of stuff happened. And two years ago, um, you know, and I did warm up for the Daily Show when John was there was the backup. And then Trevor came in and he brought his own guy in, which made sense. And in 2018, I, I made a decision. I'm like, you know what, maybe it's time I walk away. I'm going to walk away from this. I'm going to I want to leave. Like I left powerlifting. Funny that we talked about it tonight. I want to leave with a good feeling. I don't want the, the business to kind of, you know, weed me out. And I picked the day. I was going to do my last ever comedy show. And then I got a call from The Daily Show. And they're like, hey, you know, you mind coming in and filling in and, and doing some warm up? And I'm like, yeah, this will be perfect. I'll say goodbye to everybody. I went in. I warmed up. And then a couple of weeks later, they're like, hey, can you come back and warm us up again? So I'm like, all right, yeah, that was kind of my goodbye. But all right, yeah, I'll do it again. Right. <laughs> and, and then I got another call and they're like, hey, can you block out a week in June? And I'm like, all right, yeah, I, I kind of said goodbye twice, but yeah, I'll come back. <laughs> I went in that Monday and uh, the producer said, hey, come on, take a walk with me. And she turned and we went down this hallway and she looked at me and she's like, look, you know, we, we've seen the difference when you're here with the crowd as when you're not here. Um, how'd you like the job full time? And I was like, am I, wait, what? 
And she was like, yeah, she's like, we want you to be our full-time warm-up. And I'm like, did you, and you know, I knew Angelo well. And I'm like, did you talk to Angelo? Trevor, talk to Angelo. This is our decision. He understands. And it's it, like, it's up to you. And I'm like, yeah. And just, you know, I, next thing I know, I'm, I'm warming up the Daily Show full-time. I'm getting booked all over again. And I went from 80 shows back to 200. Wow. And then, you know, and Trevor's like, hey, you know, um, you want to tour with me? It'll be, you know, me, you and Josh. And then we started touring. And next thing I know, I'm flying to, you know, 33 cities in a year. You know, just living that dream I wanted that I was just like, it's over. And then just when you think it's over, bam. And, you know, it's the one thing I tell people in this business and the entertainment business in general. You know, you don't know when that break is an inch in front of your nose or a mile down the road. Yeah. And you don't know what's going to be that thing that gives you that break. You know, like my a good friend of mine, Robin Shaw, this week when she broke the internet with this video she did, how 2020's to-do list is trolling her. And it was on The View and then Oprah put it on her channel, you know, video of the year. And overnight, she's all of a sudden doing talk shows. Yeah. You know, she, her phone hasn't stopped ringing. And, you know, it was, of all things, a video she made that was just off the cuff, like, you know, how this year's been a disaster. And so you don't know what it's going to be, you know, and, and just when you think, you know, when I'm done, something like that happens. So, yeah, that's it's it's been crazy. It's been crazy. But I still have my law office. I still work during the day and I'm still waiting for that break to say, yeah, you know what? I, it's time for me to step away from this. So you've not ever stopped doing law. You've, you've continued. No. Yeah. And, and it's funny, too, because, you know, I know that there are people out there that are like, yeah, I was a lawyer and, and a comedian and I gave up law. It's like, no, dude, you didn't do it. I mean, I, I did it. Like I've been, like I have reported case decisions that I've won. I've been before the appellate division. I'm sworn into the Supreme Court in D.C. You know, I was a judge for six. You know, a lot of these people they were like lawyers for like five minutes. Right. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, I walked away, man. I gave up a career. No, you didn't give up a career. You <laughs> gave up a temp job, basically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah. what what kind of law do you? What is your specialty? Is it criminal defense? I did criminal defense for a long time. And then the judge thing kind of stopped me from doing it because I was a judge. I couldn't do both. It was a conflict. And then I wound up doing a lot of divorce work. So right now I do real estate, personal injury, divorce, and some criminal defense. Got it. Yeah. It's a general practice. Right. Right. Yeah. Now you're from Northern Jersey, correct? Yeah. I grew up just outside New York city, like 15 minutes. So did you have a lot of clients in the waste management business? (laughs) You know, my first case was a racketeering case. So I I was working, I told you I was working for a big time. Yeah. I was working for a big time uh, criminal defense guy. In fact, he's the guy who for a quick minute, uh, for a quick minute represented the Iceman um, who I don't know if you saw. Yeah, no, he, yeah, he represented these type of people. Um, wow. came up with the poppy seed defense in a DWI where the opium level in a poppy seed could throw off a test. So th- this was that oh, guy. Like we had, that's actually oh, yeah, true. We, that yeah, no, it true. is. This but, is the Frank Luciana came up with yeah. the defense. Wow. So this is the guy I worked for. Um, I was so going to ask you if you worked for the guy who's Paul Bergeron. Do you know Paul Berg? That name, Paul Bergeron. Yes, yes. Yeah. yeah. If, you, if that was the that was the guy, but he's long. Right. <laughs> that's a different but, uh, kind of guy. <laughs> Yeah, but I, I had a, one of my first cases was a racketeering case with, with mobsters. And that's why I laugh when, you know, like people watch The Sopranos and I'm like, yeah, that, that's a cartoon version of, you know, the real guys. And it's like, yeah, no, I, I saw the real guys and they're, trust me, they're, they're scarier than that. Way, <laughs> you know? way scarier. When I, right. I, 
I've watched The Sopranos two times through, especially this year, since there's yeah. not a lot to do. Um, but, you know, I went and Googled like some, you know, Jersey family mafia. They don't look like those guys. No. On the film. No. They, they, I mean, The Sopranos did, a, I think, a fairly good job, obviously. They did. They but, did. But those dudes, first of all, they're ugly guys. The real guys. Just and- not good looking. We'll bleep, we'll bleep that out to keep you safe. And and no, and here's the, here's the funny thing about it. And Greg, you, you'll get a kick out of it. They're quiet, low key, unassuming people for the most part. Yeah. I mean, Gotti's like the exception. You know, Gotti's the rare exception. For the most part, you would never know who these guys are. So you're at a restaurant, and there's a guy sitting a table away. And the the difference, and I tell people, you know, a real mobster from a fake mobster. The fake mobster will stand up and say, do you know who I am? 100%. Where, where a real mobster will sit there and be like, no, you don't know me. Yep. <laughs> yeah, you don't know. You, you uh, know I know, no, you don't know me. No, I'm nobody. Greg's from, Greg's from North Jersey, too. He gets it. Yeah. Gets it. Yeah. I lived in Hackensack. I grew up in Hackensack. Yeah, I know. I know. I grew yeah. up. Uh, I lived in Hackensack a very short period of time on Essex Street, but I grew up um, Saddle River. Okay. Yeah. Not, yeah. That, well, that's where, um, what's his name? The, the state trooper was killed by Sammy the Bull. Sammy the Bull River? Yeah. yeah, so there was a, a New Jersey state trooper that they found dead in his driveway. And the big thing was, who killed him? Was it Sammy the Bull Gravano or the Iceman? And the Iceman tried to pin it on Sammy the Bull Gravano. And before that case came to trial, that was when the Iceman died in jail. Wait, what and year was that? Oh God, this, this had to be back in like the eighties. Like but late eighties? Yeah. But the case didn't come to fruition until like the two thousands or 2010 around then. And was right when Sam, when the Iceman died. Yeah. Cause he was going to testify against Sammy the Bull saying, no, he killed him. Right. 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 And, he, and he died in his jail cell. I don't, I can't believe I don't remember that. I, yeah. I, um, I, I was going to say, but just to give this a frame of reference, my mother and father's entire families are from the Bronx and my uncle owned a uh, pool hall. Yeah. <laughs> right, right on Bruckner Boulevard. So yeah. <laughs> yeah. leave it at that. Yeah. And somehow there were no pool tables in his pool hall. It yeah, amazing. it's amazing. And I, I remember being like, I can't remember how old I was, but yeah. I was probably pre 10 years old. And I used to go, we used to go every Sunday to see my aunts and have lunch at, you know, or dinner at 11 o'clock in the morning. And I would occasionally go to the pool hall with one of my cousins. Right. And I'm, I would like come home and my, couldn't believe my parents would let me go off with my, my cousin to this pool hall as a child, you know, a bar basically. And there was never anybody there. There was just yeah. never anyone there. No, and then when no. people did come, it was like, I only remembered ever seeing the same like three or four or five guys that were friends of my uncle's. <laughs> and then I would go okay. home for lunch. And I, it took me years to put that together. Years. You, you want to hear? I'll tell you a great Bronx story. So I go to Fordham University and as a first year student, you can't keep your car on campus. Right. And I would drive home on weekends because I had my dog and I love my dog and I wanted to see my dog on weekends. And I wanted to work on weekends and my father wanted me to work. So I had to keep my car somewhere. So we, we got a connection at this um, with this bakery in the Bronx. I don't want to say which one it is. I think it's since passed hands, but still, I don't want to you know bring up anything. So I, I was told, go see the owner of this place, and they're going to have a parking space for you. So I'm like, all right. So I went to see this guy, and the guy goes, oh, yeah, you're the kid from Fordham. Yeah, okay. you get good grades? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Good, good. Just stay smart. You don't want to be a baker like me. And he walks me outside. 
and he goes, all right. He goes, you see that sign there? And you see like this mark on the curb here? He goes, that's where you're going to park your car. So I'm like, dude, this is a street spot. I'm not paying you rent for a street spot. I'm like, this is ridiculous. I'm going to come here and someone's going to be parked in my spot. He looked and he goes, listen to me. No one's going to be parked in that spot ever <laughs> but you. So I looked at this guy and I, I go back to school and I call my dad. I said, dad, I think this is bullshit. This guy gave me a fucking street spot. He goes, yeah, I know. Don't, don't worry. No one's ever going to park there but you. <laughs> and I parked there for two semesters and no one ever parked there yeah, but me. <laughs> totally believe it. Totally, 100% believe It's a true story. Yeah, true I believe story. it. 100%. Yeah. <laughs> it's unbelievable. Yeah. Uh, anyway, dude, before we wrap up, I want to ask, yeah. um, you know, me being a comic and all, <clears throat> for the, a lot of people don't know what like a warm-up comic is maybe. Like yeah. I just found out a few years ago what it is. And so I'm curious as to, so it's five days a week, correct? And well, we, we go four, yeah. Four. And then like, how do you, I mean, four days a week, different audience, I would assume pretty much. Every show. Okay. So I was going to ask like, how do you go about like what material you're going to do and like how much time do you usually get to warm them up? I've, I've never done material for warm up. So what I do, and this is just my personal preference, because there's, there's two things you have to do with warm up. First of all, the, the room is kind of big. So you have, yeah. you know, depending on, you know, the show, anywhere from 150 people to, you know, 250 people that you've got to really shrink and bring closer to the show and to the host. So the first thing you have to do is make them forget they're in a TV studio. Um, the second thing you got to do is you got to get them pumped up. You got to get them excited. Now the shows I've worked, which has been daily show. Um, I did last week tonight. I did Colbert. And I did Meredith Vieira for daytime, which is completely different than night, but we'll stick to the night shows. Um, no applause signs, none of that. I know people say that there's an applause sign at Mar. I don't know if he uses one. I could tell you the Daily Show has never used one. And when I, whenever I've done last week tonight or I've done Colbert, not, not the late show, but the Colbert show, there was never a sign. So you, you have to train the audience to forget to look at the cameras, be in the moment, and, you know, just really interact with the show, you know, be alive. And the way I would do that would be crowd work. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, the more you talk to them, the closer you bring them to you, the more you make, you make them feel like they're part of the show. Yeah. So that was always my approach. Whereas if just, if you just stand there and do stand up, then they think they're watching a show. Right. So I, I try to break down that wall. I walk into the crowd. So it's, it's a mix of, you know, rah-rah stuff with improv stuff and you got to make them laugh because it's like any MC of any comedy show. If you set the tone up front, wow, this is going to be fun. All right, this guy's funny. This is going to be a good time. They're already laughing so that by the time Trevor comes out, again, they're, they're in a laughing mood. You want to put them in that mood. You have to set the mood. Um, and then, you know, you'll, you'll by just that virtue, you'll get them loud. Um, that's my approach. It's not everyone's approach. And I could tell you, you know, I, I did it for last week tonight, the, the first night they did the show that wasn't aired and the HBO executives were there and they wanted me fired because I did, I, I wound up being out there longer than anyone anticipated. I wound up because it, the timing was all screwed up and everything. And they were just trying to get their rhythm that night and they let me do warm up, and I was out there for an hour. Whoa. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Normally, the warm up is anywhere between, I've seen it as short as 10 minutes 
And as long as 20, if something's going wrong and rewrite, they'll give you one of these. You know, the longest I think I've gone for Trevor was when we were in Miami. And again, doing a, a live show in a, in, a stu- in a building that you're not used to being in. I think I went like 35 minutes, which was again, and they were like, we're sorry, man. We, we have sound issues. We're in a new building. We're in a Jackie Gleason theater. We couldn't get shit worked out this first night. Normally with me and Trevor, it's like 15 to 20 minutes. Um, sometimes shorter. When you're out there for an hour doing improv and you don't realize the audience is all executives from HBO, hmm. Central, <laughs> well, you know, they don't quite find humor in themselves the way I did. Right. And <laughs> the way the, the audience that was non-executive was finding humor in them as well. And, you know, it's funny, I walked off and, and Tim was there. Tim Carvel looked at me, he's like, dude, you're a fucking genius. And I was like, thank you. I'm like, I, I, and I'm, he's like, no, you don't need to explain anything. That was brilliant. We were getting notes here. And then the next week it's like, yeah, you can't come back because you pissed off the executives at HBO. You made fun of them. And then two weeks later, it's like, I'm back. And I did warm up for like four straight shows. And then they, they just went in a different direction. You know, they wanted something different. They wanted more rah-rah. Um, but that's, that's what it is for me. I know people do it different at different shows. Some shows, it's purely rah-rah, um, and it's no jokes. It's no improv. Other shows, you know, you'll have someone stand there and do stand-up right. for like five, ten minutes. So um, that's the rhythm me and Trevor are in, and it seems to work. Um, and, and listen, you know, he'll tell me if something's not working. He wants me to switch, and he rarely gives me cues. He just he trusts me. Um, he's one of the just fucking nicest people you will ever meet in your life. He's much like John. He's everything you want a celebrity to be. Right. Do yeah. you, when you like when when you're done with your warm up, does do they run it right into the introductions on the show? He comes. Trevor sneaks up behind me. I never know when he's in a walkout. So I'll be in the middle of something, and he'll just come out, and then all of a sudden the crowd will be screaming. And then it starts. <laughs> I'm like, all right, there he is. Right. And then he's like, "Hey, listen, uh, we're gonna start the show now. Blah blah blah. Give it up for Vince." All right, I'm going to go back. We're going to do our thing. And then it's like, all right, guys, remember everything I told you? Blah, blah. And I'm out of there. And then he comes out. And I watched the first segment off camera just in my own room just to make sure the crowd's with it. Right. And after that, I'm like, all right, they get it. They're good. And then I, I leave the building. I get the fuck out of everybody's way. <laughs> so, and then so you're not there during the taping to like in, in, in commercials to go out and keep. No, no, no. Engaged. Daytime, they do that. Right. They do that during daytime. And daytime is weird because. You're literally there filling in time for them. So you could be in the middle of a bit and all of a sudden a director will yell, 10 seconds. You're like, I'm literally in the middle. And then it's just, yeah. And you're like, oh shit. You know, you're like to hear this screech from this director from behind you. And you're like, all right, I'm going to get out of here. We're going to enjoy the show. And then you're literally running off stage. That's a different animal. And that, that I've noticed on a lot of the daytime stuff. And again, not speaking for everybody. They like, you know, they start giving away shit. Like, you know, who wants a book? You know, who wants candy? And yeah, that's, that's a little bit too much clowny for me. Um, That's not comedian for me. So I, I tended to, you know, not enjoy the daytime stuff as much. And what's your, what's your relationship with Trevor? Not on set. Like, do you guys, he's he's one of true. Look, I have to tell you, I've heard nightmares about opening for big name people. I've right. heard when you don't, don't look at the headliner, don't talk to the yep. headliner. He is everything opposite from that. He is, hey, come on, let's sit down. We're going to bullshit, you know, and 
we, when, I never forget, we got to the first show we ever did together. And we had separate green rooms and me and Josh went to a separate green room and he called us down and he's like, where are you guys? And we're like, oh, we're in our green room. He goes, why? And we're like, oh, we figured you what? He's like, no, dude, this is my room. This is your room. Right. And it was, it's been like that ever since. And then before you knew it, there was no separate green rooms. That's it cool. was, Tre it was Trevor and company. Right. And we would all hang out together. Um, you know, whether we're in a car getting driven somewhere or, you know, on a plane going somewhere, it's not Trevor in the back of the plane. It's, it's Trevor sitting with us. Right. And he's just as real a person as you, I'm telling you, it's, it's incredible because you hear nightmares with headliners and it's like, man, I, I hit the fucking lottery with this guy. Right. I mean, this guy is just, he's just, you know, like a dude. Yeah. No, that's yeah. awesome. Yeah. You know, it was probably a nightmare is Jerry Seinfeld. So anyways. <laughs> um, <laughs> Nick's really going for that opening spot for Jerry. Yeah, yeah. yeah dude, I don't know. I don't like him. He's going to be on his, his demo. Listen, what am I going to do? <laughs> it's going to be me. I'm going to be honest. Dude, Whose podcast is this? <laughs> dude, if he heard the name of our podcast, there's oh, no it'd make him fucking cringe. God, he's like, oh, I don't know about that. What's oh. a vagina? I've never. I, I hate. I hate to keep saying this. I just have to say it. I've never met. He's great. Like the show Seinfeld, fantastic. I understand what he means to comedy and all that, but his stand-up, I just can't. I can't get through it. I I feel like I feel like he never talks about like like he's like the opposite of like a say a Sebastian right who he talks right. about his family his kids you know stuff about him Seinfeld does none of that it's all and, and it's like, I feel like I can't, yeah I feel like I can't connect you're not yeah. talking about anything about your own life I don't really know you know it's I don't know it's so funny because I I don't watch stand up. And this is like, I have a hard, fast rule. I, I don't watch it. So somebody will say to me, hey, did you see Chappelle? I'm like, no. And I, did you see Kevin? I'm like, no. And they're like, you know, but you don't like, I'm like, no, I, I don't watch stand up because I don't want to be influenced by what I think might be popular. And then there's that thing where, look, we, we have overlap. Okay. It's, it's just part of what it is. If, if I do have overlap with somebody, it's going to be a coincidence. Right. And it, it's, it's not going to be because I watched them and then you have this weird thing. And I've seen comics do this where they work with people. And then all of a sudden, because you're around and act so much, you'll do something not realizing someone at someone else's bit. Yeah. And all of a sudden you'll, you'll kind of do it in a different way. And somebody be like, Hey man, I, I've seen somebody do that. And they're like, no, what are you talking about? It's like, yeah, no, no, I work with them all the time. Yeah. It's like, you know, they have that. So almost like subconsciously, I'm not even saying some people do it to hack and still, and listen, there are those people that do that. But, you know, and I'll do a bit and someone will tell me, oh, you know, Burr was on Conan talking about something like that. And I'll be like, listen, I could pull the tape. I could, you know, play you the audio. I could show you the video of when I came up with it. I never run into Burr. I don't know Burr. We don't know each other. I'll be more than happy to show him when I did the bit. When, he, when did he do it? And if mine predates his, I'll be like, dude. Look, I don't know what to tell you. There's overlap. It happens. Yeah. I would yeah. never accuse somebody of stealing or whatever. If his predates mine, even if I, I didn't see it, I won't do it anymore. So that's the way I go about, you know, my own personal rule. Right. So if, if somebody does something that predates me doing it, I'm going to say, you know what, whether it 
you know, subconsciously or didn't, and it doesn't matter. You did it before me. I'm going to let it go, especially if it's, if it's anywhere near the same. Yeah. If it's a completely different take on something, then, hey, it's a different take. We're going to overlap on stuff. You know, sure. we're all going to have, you know, plain stuff. You know, yeah. we're all going to like, like now, especially with coronavirus shit. You know, oh, it's, it's, it's a race next year. Do the Corona stuff, you know. I refuse to talk about it anymore. To be honest, when I when I I don't want to, I just want to pretend didn't happen. I don't care. I don't want to talk about it anymore. <laughs> like I just want to. I mean, you you saw the way I handled it, you know, in the show that we did. That was um, yeah. I try to take it in in a different way, you know, and just again, it's my personal experience with it, and not make it the generic, you know, Corona joke. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's literally, the, this is the way it happened to me. You know, this is what I was going through. I can't imagine. I mean, I, I don't go to any stand, I mean, uh, open mics anymore, or at least I try uh, as, as little as I possibly can to run through them. But man, once they really open up in a big way, it's, it's going to be an onslaught of the, the work. Someone should make a documentary of the work, <laughs> like the way they made the aristocrats. <laughs> Just yeah. like when comedy clubs really truly open up and it'd be, you know, sometime say spring next year, like of just the Corona jokes, like how bad yeah. it's gonna get. gets. <laughs> I, I did, I did one, I did one open mic in, in 20 years of comedy. Right. And I was just like, oh, oh, we're doing comedy for other comics with sitting in the back with notebooks. Yeah, I'm going to fucking pass on that. <laughs> yeah, uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to skip these shows yeah. if you don't mind. Yeah, there's a couple times. Yeah, yeah. Because then you don't really know if they work or not, the jokes work or not. And no, that- because it's just, yeah, it's, it's angry birds at that yeah. point just staring I, at each other. I've said to Greg, I've compared it to lifting. I've been like, it's like going in the gym just being blindfolded. Like you never know if like you're getting stronger or not. You have no idea what's on the bar. You don't know what the hell's going on. I, I call comedians seagulls. We're seagulls on a boardwalk. And, you know, the second we see that French fry, it's like we are not the same species. We, this is just <laughs> we're willing to cannibalize each other, do what we have. to. That's why you'll see a seagull with one leg is just like, no, man, you went after my fry. And that's why we're, that's why when you see a crippled comedian, it wasn't an accident. That was another comedian did that to that. Get his legs out. Yeah, that that wasn't something that happened in life. That was another comedian did that for a spot. Oh, I love that, dude. <laughs> Vince, I want to thank you so much for coming on today. This was really uh, fun. Thank you, guys. Yeah, no, thank you for taking the time. Um, I don't know when this is going to come out, but uh, happy Thanksgiving because it's tomorrow. Yes, you guys as well. Yeah, happy holidays. Yeah, happy holidays, all that stuff, dude. Thanks. Hopefully yeah. I'll be, I'll be uh, stand up New York's doing shows Friday in the park midday for not working. I'll be there if you want to come hang or whatever. I, yeah. I, I definitely want to come to the city in the middle of the afternoon and, and go to central park. <laughs> <laughs> Friday after Friday. Thanksgiving, you know, Friday. Yeah. It'll be fine. Yeah. How, how bad can that commute and, and just walk around? Yeah, I'm coming from, we're coming from Connecticut. It's not as bad where you're coming so, from. Nick, I'm going to translate that, that answer. That answer was, <laughs> Uh, yeah, go fuck yourself. Yeah, yeah. that's what that I is. Like, I like yeah. when Italians yell at me. I'm used to it. Feel at home. Yeah, I'm, why don't I just go to the parade tomorrow instead? All right. Are they even, <laughs> having, are they even having it? There's yeah, no- for no people. Yeah, yeah, that's what they're really? gonna do. Yeah, they're gonna televise it. So I, it's like, really? Where is that? Ha- what are they doing it in a parking lot or something? No, I think they're doing it like the normal parade. So if you're lucky enough to live in a building. And it walks past your building, which is good because that's, you know, what we want to do is make it as elite as possible. Yeah, and right. then 
and then walk past Macy's, which is going to be closed and boarded up in case Trump somehow still wins. And then, uh, yeah, and then they just deflate the balloon. I don't even fucking know anymore what's happening in this that, life. It's so bizarre. That's very strange. I thought you were kidding for a second. Man. No, I think wow. they really have it. I, I, last I saw, yeah. <laughs> yeah well, and, but de Blasio can change his mind tomorrow and be like, you know what? It, it's over 25 balloons, and that spreads the virus, so we have to stop. <laughs> Blasio, that guy's worse than Seinfeld. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> this is awesome. All right, man. Appreciate it. All right, boys. Thank you so much. Have a good one. Have a good holiday. You too.